but for now, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 13, verses 42 through 52. We're going to finish up this chapter in Acts, and this occasion where Paul and Silas have been preaching to the, uh, the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and the proselytes here in Pisidian Antioch. Acts chapter 13, verses 42 to the end of the chapter. If you would, stand with me as we read God's word together. Acts 13, verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to this passage here today in Acts chapter 13. And Lord, as we now begin to see the, the results that come from the preaching of the gospel, we see the outcome of, of the proclamation of Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. Lord, I pray that you would instruct us today, that you would instruct us, that you would challenge us. Lord, that we would find uh, in this text truth, that we would see it as it is, the word of God. And Lord, that it is profitable for all things, for instruction, for reproof, for training in righteousness. And Lord, I pray that that would be what happens here today, that those of us who need instructing would be given it, that those of us who need rebuking would be given it, that those of us uh, who need to be trained in righteousness would be given that as well. Lord, grant us these things by your grace. In the Christ's name we pray, amen. In uh, science... And I can attest to this with my wife being a, a science teacher, a chemistry teacher. Uh, there's this, this concept within chemistry, within uh, uh, laboratory experiments, that different chemicals, different uh, sort of elements, if you will, when mixed together with certain other chemicals, certain other elements, can create all kinds of different reactions. In fact, as a teacher, one of the things my wife has told me is that it can be really stressful when you're teaching a lab, when you're preparing a lab, because you're basically inviting all of these high school students to come in, grab hold of these chemicals and fire and all these things that could be incredibly dangerous, and it is the responsibility of the teacher to make sure that they all stay safe, that they put chemicals with the correct chemicals and don't pour the wrong things into the wrong beakers and, 
and these things so that you don't have terrible reactions. Because all kinds of things when you mix can happen when you mix together different chemicals, right? Sometimes you'll mix together two chemicals and basically nothing will happen. Sometimes you'll mix together two chemicals and it'll create a terrible odor or maybe even toxic fumes. Sometimes you can mix together different things and it can create fire or it can explode. All kinds of terrible things can happen when you mix together different elements, different chemicals. But also some good things can happen, some cool things can happen. Just recently, my wife was able to go and, and teach a lesson at preschool where my son goes to, to ECS preschool. And was, uh, uh, they, they did the experiment where you create, I think it's called elephant toothpaste, where you pour these chemicals together and, and on purpose, right? And you get this colorful, foamy liquid that comes up out of, the, out of the glass or whatever you're doing the chemical reaction in. It can be a lot of fun, right? But there's all kinds of things that can go wrong because you can take the same chemical, whatever it might be, sodium, chloride, I don't know, some other chemical, and you can, you can pour it into several different chemicals and get several different reactions, some good, some bad, or some no reaction. One of the things that we see that's true about when the gospel is preached, and we see it in our text here today, is that when the gospel is preached, it's kind of like taking a chemical and adding it to other chemicals. Some that will create good reactions, some that will create bad reactions, it's not the chemical in your hand that's changing. It's not the gospel that's changing as it's poured out upon different hearts, but it's the heart that it hits that reacts with it and determines how it's going to react. As the apostle Paul and, and Barnabas are preaching here in Antioch, Pisidia, one of the things that we see is that as they preach the gospel, there are different reactions to the gospel as it's preached. There are some who accept the gospel. There are some who are, are joyful to hear it. There are others who are angry, who are bitter. There are some who are brought to eternal life. And there are some yet who desire to kill and persecute Paul and Barnabas. We see today that, that as the gospel is preached, it's just like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 and 24. He says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. We see that as the gospel is preached, the same gospel to one person, especially to the Jews, was a stumbling block. It caused them confusion. It caused them consternation to hear the gospel that so changed, so altered their worldview and their reality as Jewish people. And yet to others, to, to many Gentiles, the gospel when it is preached is foolishness. It is folly. It is silly. And I think many of us can relate to this kind of reaction as we see it from the world today. But the one thing that is also true is that though in some cases the gospel is a stumbling block, in some cases it is foolishness, there are also those cases where the gospel, as it is preached, the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified is the power of God for salvation. And so we see all three of these things here today, that the gospel is a stumbling block, it is folly, or it is the power of God to the people who hear it. We start in verse 42 as, as we're coming off of having just heard this gospel proclamation by 
Paul. We've been looking at it over the past three weeks where Paul preaches the gospel, he along with Barnabas. And we come now to verse 42 where we see the aftermath. We see the reaction. We see what happens after the gospel is preached. And the first thing that we see in verse 42 is we see that the gospel, as Paul was preaching, was water, much needed water to a very dry and desperate people. For indeed, how do they respond? It says, as they went out, the people begged them that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. After hearing the gospel, receiving the, the water that their dry souls, their, their hearts so desperately needed, they begged Paul, they begged him and Barnabas to come back the next week. Give us more of this gospel. Give us more of what is good for us. We need it. We love it. It is refreshing to their heart, refreshing to their soul. That's what the gospel is to people who are desperate, to people who need it. That's why Jesus said in the gospels that he did not come to, to tend to the well, those who have no need of a doctor, but he came to tend to the sick, to the needy, those who understand and see their need of a savior. All those who see their need, see their sin rightly, will feel the same way that the people here in Antioch did when the gospel was preached. It will be water to their dry souls. It will be food for their spirit, just as it was to them. They were ready and received the grace of God with joy. Many of the people here in Antioch did. But then in verse 43, we see that the grace of God doesn't just come at, the mo at, at that moment of belief. And then after salvation, it's just, okay, we're done with grace. Now we move on to something else. Now we fend for ourselves, right? No, the Christian life is one that is begun by grace, but it's also one that is nurtured by grace. But then it is also one that is ultimately completed. How? By God's grace. That's why in verse 43, Paul and Barnabas urged them to continue in the grace of God. You see, there can be a temptation among, among people, some believers, some non-believers, who after having heard the grace of God and thinking, okay, the grace of God is the way we enter into salvation. It's the way we, we become a part of the family of God. But then the next question is, well, okay, well, how do we keep ourselves there? How, after being brought to grace, do we make sure that we maintain ourselves in the family of God? Paul and Barnabas don't encourage them to do any specific things. They don't encourage them to any sort of actions that will maintain their salvation. Indeed, what they say is akin to what Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 3. He says to the Galatian church, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are ye now being perfected by the flesh? What Paul and Barnabas give to, to these believers here who have received the grace of God, who have received the gospel, is that he gives them more good news. We can imagine they might have wondered that same question. Okay, we've, we've received the grace of God. We've heard the good news. We've believed it. Now, how do we maintain it? How do we preserve the good thing that we have received? This is the very same mentality, is it not, that led to the Galatian heresy? The idea that, yes, it's by Christ that you are initially justified, that you're initially saved, but you must do certain works. You must perform certain things in order to, to continue, in order to maintain your salvation, in order to truly be a part of the people of God. 
But that's not what the gospel says, and that's not what Paul and Barnabas say. After introducing these people to God's grace and bringing them into it, they now, continue, they now encourage them to continue in God's grace, not to turn to legalism. The answer to how a Christian remains a Christian and is built up as a Christian is still the same. And the answer to how you become a Christian is the grace of God and by the grace of God alone. So then how are we maintained as Christians? How are we persevered? How are we preserved as Christians? It is entirely by the grace of God. Nothing that we do, though we are called to obey, though we are called to persevere, though we are called to worship God, there's nothing that we can do apart from the grace of God in order to persevere ourselves, in order to maintain our salvation. Indeed, as some theologians have said, and rightly so, if it was up to us to keep our salvation we would lose it. We did not earn our salvation, therefore we cannot keep it. We are kept by God's grace. And so the encouragement to a believer who is, who is wondering, how can I maintain my faith? How can I maintain my salvation? How can I maintain my status in Christ Jesus? The answer is, turn to God's grace. God's grace is not just a a one-time gift that's given, you're converted, and then that's it. It is a constant, sustaining, life-giving flow and one that the Christian desperately needs and is dependent on. This message is so good, so surprising, so noteworthy that almost the whole town turns up next Sabbath to hear the gospel as it's being preached. In verse 44, the next Sabbath, like I said, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. This was quite a sight to the the Jews and the the God-fearing Gentiles and the proselytes as they now come to Sabbath next week as normal and find that the whole town is there, that the synagogue is packed. There's a theologian named F.F. Bruce who, who just has an amazing commentary on the book of Acts. But one thing about his commentary is that, I don't say this in a mean way, it's kind of dry. It's, it's very uh, theological, it's, it's very heady a lot of times, it's very valuable, very good, but at this particular point in the book of Acts, as he's, he's writing his commentary, he says something that, it's kind of funny, and I think it's helpful for us, and, and I'm going to read it for us now. F.F. Bruce says about this instance where all, this, all these people have gathered now in the synagogue, he says, knowing, as we unfortunately do, how regular Christian worshipers can manifest quite unchristian indignation when they arrive at church on Sunday morning to find their customary seat as occupied by rank outsiders who have come to hear some popular visiting speaker, we can readily appreciate the annoyance of the Jewish community at finding their synagogue practically taken over by a Gentile audience on this occasion. And we can relate to that, can't we? Because I'm looking around right now and I'm telling you, you might not realize that a lot of you have typical seats that you sit in. And you might not become indignant, you might not become angry, but if you walk in and someone is sitting in your seat, doesn't it bother you just a little bit? If we're honest, right? Now imagine how the Jews must have felt to come to synagogue that Sabbath and to find not just people in their seats, but Gentiles filling their synagogue, filling their place of worship, how frustrating that must have been to them. But it seems obvious that there was 
more eating at them than just the outsiders who had taken their seats. They were jealous of what was happening at the synagogue. That's what we read in verse 45, that when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Their jealousy, the jealousy on display by these Jewish leaders was a display, it was an outward picture of the hardness of their heart. That seeing all of these people, something that most pastors would rejoice in, most leaders would rejoice in to see all these people who have gathered together at your synagogue. But the Jews are not rejoicing, they are jealous exposing the hardness of their hearts that as these people are coming and they're being exposed to the word of God, it causes in these Jewish leaders anger, frustration, and jealousy. Jealousy for, for one of a couple of reasons. It could be that they were jealous of, of the apostles, that they were gaining such a following, that they were gaining such prestige, that they were such powerful leaders and speakers, and that probably was a part of it. But I think even more than that, what caused jealousy to stir in the hard hearts of these Jewish leaders and Jewish worshipers was the idea that the message of salvation that was given to the Gentiles, to the, or excuse me, to the Israelites through the promises of God was now being extended and granted to and proclaimed to the Gentiles. And that, as much as anything else, caused them great anger and jealousy and frustration to see the Gentiles receiving what they felt was theirs and theirs alone. Salvation didn't belong to the Gentiles, these dirty dogs as they would have thought of them. Salvation belonged to the people of God, to the Jews, to the Israelites, and to them alone. There's an interesting word that we need to notice about jealousy, an interesting idea that's, that's communicated here for us. Because although we might not be like the Jews here and we, we get upset or angry or jealous when people hear the gospel and believe it, we do understand, right, that jealousy is often something that ex exposes the sin in our own hearts, doesn't it? How do we feel when we see a, a friend or, or even a brother or sister in Christ receiving something that is good, maybe something that we wish we were receiving? Doesn't the sin in our heart oftentimes make us want to, as though we might, although we might put on a smile in front of them, don't we sometimes think in the back of our hearts, in the back of our, our minds, that's not fair? How could that good thing come to them and not to me? How easy is it for you to rejoice with those who rejoice? I think sometimes it's relatively easy for us to mourn with those who mourn, right? but to rejoice in the, in the good things that have come to others and the grace of God being shown to others, isn't that sometimes a little bit more difficult? Because of the sin in our hearts, we want good things to come to ourselves. And when we see other people receiving good things, especially good things we feel that we deserve, it can sometimes cause us the same kind of reaction as the Jews here. It can cause us jealousy, bitterness towards others. The Jews didn't like the following that the apostles were receiving, but they also didn't like the idea that the Gentiles were receiving the benefits of the salvation message that was given to the people of Israel. They despised the idea that the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob 
would freely extend salvation to these Gentiles. These people who had no right, who had no claim to a proper lineage. Now the gospel was extended to them. And so they begin to speak against Paul and revile him out of their anger, out of their jealousy, out of their hardness of heart. In verse 46 through 47, we see the response that Paul and Barnabas give. Verse 46, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. I like this. The response that Paul and Barnabas give, there are all kinds of responses that we would want to give if we were in their shoes, right? We would want to cry injustice. We would maybe sometimes want to back down and say, well, I really am not looking to to cause any problems, to cause any issues. But what Paul and Barnabas do, seeing and understanding the gospel rightly as a message for all, speak out boldly to the Jews, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. They judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. How? By showing contempt for the word of God, disdaining and rejecting the word of God. He says, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. In verse 47 here, where the Apostle Paul is quoting, he's quoting for us from the prophet Isaiah. A prophet that, believe it or not, was actually originally intended and spoken of in its immediate context of the Israelites, of the people of Israel, of the Jews. But as we know, the Jews were disobedient. They failed to be the light to the Gentiles that the Lord had originally intended for them to be. And so now this had become a prophecy, a statement, not about them, but about Christ, the fulfillment of where the Jews failed. Christ, the fulfillment of the promises of God, the fulfillment of the prophecies given in the Old Testament. And we see now that they apply this even to themselves as they go out as messengers of Jesus Christ. They go out proclaiming the good news to the Gentiles, a light for the Gentiles, so the salvation may be brought to the ends of the earth. By and large, the Jews, along with their leaders, rejected the message of Christ and salvation in him. But what's fascinating is that the group of people that were oftentimes most likely to hear and receive the good news of the gospel were God-fearing Gentiles and proselytes. These people who worshiped alongside the Jews in the synagogues, who saw the God of Israel as the one true God, but yet never fully embraced Judaism, or perhaps never had that ethnic identity that the Jews so clung to and so relied on. You see, the gospel found a place among those who were drawn to the word of God, who were drawn to the promises of Yahweh, but it was rejected by those who took pride in their ethnicity, who took pride in their lineage. It shouldn't surprise us then that as the the apostles were going to the synagogues first, the place where they found the greatest hearing wasn't so much among the Jews, though some Jews did believe by God's grace, but their greatest hearing, their greatest reception was found among the God-fearing Gentiles, those people who rightly saw and understood the word of God and the hope found in Christ, not in their ethnicity, not in their lineage. And although we maybe don't see as much of this today in terms of 
people saying, well, I am a Jew or, or I am an American or, or I am a, a German or whatever the case might be and pointing to that for their hope. We do still see people pointing to the wrong things. In essence, one thing that we see is there are people that will point to a sort of church lineage for their hope and for their salvation. There are many people who, who have membership at various churches or maybe at one particular church but have no connection to that church but because they, they walked an aisle, because their parents were members there and they grew up there, were baptized there, it's their understanding that they are saved. And if you ask many people in the world today who call themselves Christians, this is a relatively common story. Well, yes, I, I grew up at this church and was baptized in this church and walked that aisle at that VBS. Where are they now? Who knows? For many people, that's irrelevant. It was that moment, that, that place, that connection with that church and that baptismal water that they put their hope in. To the point that, that a, a, a pastor friend of mine who recently, he and his church, a relatively large church uh, of a few hundred people, they were cleaning through their roles. They were cleaning up their members' roles, something that was way overdue. It was a church that averaged on a Sunday morning about 200, maybe 250 people. But their membership role was over 2,000 people. That's a role that has not been cleaned up in a long time. And so they took on the task of saying, we need to take hold of this. We need to, to clean up our, our members' roles and recognize who is a member who is not a member. And throughout that process, what they would do is as they would come to various members on their list, they would send them a, a letter saying, hey, have you moved your membership? We haven't seen you in a long time. If you're still a member here or still desire to be a member here, you need to come. You need to talk with us. And, and there needs to be some reconciliation. There needs to be some repentance. And once that letter, if that letter was met with nothing, with no response, what would happen? They would remove them from the role and they would send them a letter notifying them. You have been removed from the roles. And you would not believe the number of people who were angry, who could not believe they were indignant, that they were, their names would be removed from the membership roles. As though the removal from those membership roles meant a removal from the kingdom of God. People who hadn't been to church in years were furious that they would be so treated and have their names removed from the membership roles. Believe it or not, this kind of relying on a, on a sort of lineage, though in some cases a church lineage, still exists today. And church family, just let me encourage you, if you don't need to hear this, you're going to hear it anyway. Do not rely on your membership here at Redeemer Fellowship Church for your salvation. Do not rely or trust in your baptism for your salvation. These are all good things that we do in obedience to Christ. We are called to baptism. We are called to membership in the local church. But none of those things means our salvation. It is by faith and trust in Christ alone that we are saved, not by our church lineage. These Jews relied on their lineage. They trusted in who they were, their ethnicity for their salvation. And therefore, the concept of the Gentiles being saved was so abrasive to them. And yet, that is exactly who the gospel was going to and who was being saved. For indeed, after hearing this, the Gentiles heard this and they began to rejoice, glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As we've seen already, 
the preaching of the gospel, like pouring out of a chemical into various different other chemicals, has created all kinds of different reactions. For some, it has created jealousy. For some, it has brought salvation. And for others, it brings other things as well. But here in verses 48 and 49, we see that the gospel truth is that this is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Just as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, it is impossible for us to understand the second half of verse 48 and not see the power of God and election on display. He says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. We see that the only way that faith, that belief comes upon a person is that the Lord acts, that the Lord elects them and chooses them and works salvation in them, even works faith in them. This is difficult for many people to understand, difficult for many people to accept, and yet it is what is clearly displayed for us here, clearly written down for us to read. That everyone who believed, believed why? Because they were appointed unto salvation. It is not the other way around. Salvation has not been offered and God has said, I've done all the work necessary except belief, except faith. That is something that you have to do. The work has all been done. Now it is up to you, man, to work up salvation, to work up faith and belief in and of yourself, and then you will be saved. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel says God elects people unto salvation and then through that works belief in them, works faith in them. In them, even faith itself is a gift of God's grace. Shailen, Christian hip-hop artist, sings a song on election. Not many songs on election out there. But he sings a song on election. And one of the examples that he uses in the the song that that many people use is they'll, they'll say, and I think wrongly so, that they'll say salvation is like God throwing a life ring out to us as we're drowning in the ocean. And God throws the life ring out to us, throws us the rope, And it is our faith by which we take hold of that rope, that we exert the effort necessary and believe, and therefore by our belief that we muster, that we work in ourselves, we are pulled back into the boat. We are pulled to salvation. And that sounds okay at first, doesn't it? But the problem is, what does the Bible say about our state? Apart from Christ, we are dead. There was nothing in us that's going to reach out and take hold of any lifeline that we are thrown. Ropes could slap us in the face all day long. We're dead. There's nothing we can do about it. What the Bible says is that God elects people unto salvation and then does all the work necessary to restore them from death unto life. It is that regeneration, that faith is worked in a believer, that faith is introduced in all those whom God has chosen to save. And here's the good news also, that all those whom God appointed to salvation believed. There is not a single one who was appointed unto salvation, but didn't do the necessary work. There is not a single one who was appointed unto salvation, but then, eh, your faith was weak, you're out. Every single person who was appointed unto salvation believed. And this is good news for us believers. This is good news for us because it also encourages us in our assurance, doesn't it? That the same way we enter into salvation by God's electing and his working in us, 
It's the same way we are maintained in our salvation. Apart from election, we have no hope of salvation. This is why, as John Calvin says in his commentary on Acts, he says, since the whole human race is blind and stubborn, those faults remain fixed in our nature until they are corrected by the grace of the Spirit. And that comes only from election. Two people may hear the same teaching together, yet one is willing to learn and the other persists in his obstinacy. Yet they do not differ in nature, but God illumines the one and not the other. This is the question that John Calvin poses here. He says, if two people hear the same gospel message proclaimed, and yet one believes and one doesn't, why is that? What some would say is that, well, the one person just was more disposed to believe. Or the one person, well, they just thought about it harder. They just, they were smarter, maybe. And therefore, they believed when they heard the message. But that's not what happens. If that were the case, would we not have reason for boasting? Well, I just gave it a little more time. I gave the gospel a chance. You didn't. Therefore, I believed. You can pat on the back right there. Did a pretty good job. That's what we get if we end up in this place for salvation. But what the gospel says and what election teaches us is that we have no place for boasting. It's not in us and it's not from us that faith and belief has worked. It is purely a gift of God's grace. Faith indeed is the conduit by which the benefits of salvation are communicated to us. Faith is the means by which salvation is applied to us. But it is not we who supply that conduit. It is God. It is God who supplies the faith. Faith itself is granted to the elect as a gift at regeneration. It's not something we create in and of ourselves. If it was, then it would be very hard to explain how so many scholars, men who know the Bible far better than I, still reject the gospel. You know, colleges and universities are filled with people who know the gospel more than me and probably more than most of you. Why don't they believe? They have the understanding. They have the knowledge. Because it doesn't come down to our understanding, to our knowledge, to the effort that we put in. It comes down to the grace of God to illuminate our hearts and our eyes. That's why when we pray as we proclaim the gospel, our prayer ought not to be, Lord, help me to proclaim the gospel better than anyone has ever proclaimed it. Better than any apologist, any evangelist, any preacher. Because guess what? It's probably not going to be that good. It's not when I proclaim the gospel. Normally it's, I stumble over my words. I forget to say something I should say. But it's not that that saves people. And we don't pray accordingly. We pray, Lord, change this person's heart. Reveal to them the beauty of Christ and salvation found in him. That's the only way they're going to be saved is if Christ opens up their heart. In other words, apart from God's election, everyone will be enslaved to their sinful nature and there is no hope for anyone. But we know that there is hope. We see it even in our story here that many who were here believed because God chose to save them. And then we see in Verses 50 through 52, final words of this chapter. But the Jews, inside of the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But, 
They shook the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. As the gospel is being preached, one of the reactions that has been demonstrated by history as inevitable, as Aaron has already reminded us today as we pray for the persecuted church, one thing that is inevitable as we are, are performing this experiment of pouring the, the, the gospel out into different hearts, one thing that is inevitable is that as the gospel is being preached, persecution will result. Persecution will come. And the persecution that comes here in Antioch becomes so serious to the point that the apostles are not able to stay any longer. And then we have this this description of how it is that they leave as, as the persecution rises and the leading men and women of the city are, are set up against them. They drive them out. It says that they shook the dust off their feet against them. This shaking of the dust off of their feet was not a statement that was unknown to the people. In fact, it's something that the Jews would have been quite familiar with because when would the Jews have done this? The Jews, after having been in a Gentile land, a Gentile city, what would they do? They would shake the dust off their feet so as not to carry the, the, the filth, the dirt even from these Gentile cities so as to corrupt themselves or their city or their house. Here we see now the tables have turned. And it is against these people, the Jews who are so devout in their Judaism, who have rejected Christ, who've rejected the message of salvation, who have rejected their Messiah, that after showing such disdain for the word of God, the apostles shake the dust off their feet, just as Christ commanded his apostles to do. Where the word of God is disdained, the dust must be shaken off. This is not intended for us to be a, a regular or, or a common response to non-believers. Okay? We need to make this clear. That, that the Bible talks about how we are to deal with people who are, who are in sin, how we deal with people who are non-believers. And it is not that every person we meet who doesn't believe or every person who, who is dealing with sin or, or is a, an adulterer or, or a murderer or a thief, all of these things are described in the scriptures and none of, this, none of them are given the same reaction. This is a, a, an action, a sort of statement reserved only for those who disdain the word of God and detest God's word, who not only fail to believe, but who set their hearts against God God's people against God's word in such a malicious and hateful way. We are not to be walking around shaking the dust off of our feet for every non-believer that we meet. We are called to go out and proclaim the gospel to all. One of the things that we, that we learn from this story is that as we go out as believers, we are called to proclaim the gospel, to declare it, to give people the good news of the gospel. And we know that as we do so, not everyone believes. In fact, it's very much like what happens here. As the gospel is being poured out onto various hearts, we do so indiscriminately, and all kinds of reactions are going to happen. There are going to be some who hear the gospel as we proclaim it, and they're going to believe by God's grace. But there are going to be others yet who think it sounds like stupidity, who think it to be foolish. And there's going to be others yet who it becomes a stumbling block for. But we are called to proclaim it nonetheless. 
because we don't know who it is that God's going to save. We don't know who the elect are. We, all, we are called to, just as Paul and Barnabas are doing, to proclaim it to all. There was a book that, uh, that I read one time that described evangelism as a sort of spiritual Easter egg hunt, a gospel Easter egg hunt, that we go out and we proclaim the gospel to all. And guess what? We don't know who is elect. We don't know who is saved. But one thing we do know is that there are some who are. And that when they hear the gospel, they will believe it. And I think that's a pretty good analogy. But I think maybe one that, that this passage gives to us here today is that it's more like instead of a gospel Easter egg hunt, it's like a gospel chemical testing. That we pour out the gospel to all who we come in contact with, to everyone indiscriminately, knowing that there will be some who believe and we rejoice in that. But there will be some who react very poorly to the gospel who reject it, who don't believe it, and many who will even hate us for teaching it. But like Paul and Barnabas, we are called to proclaim it boldly nonetheless because there are those who will believe. There are those for whom it will be water to their dry and thirsty spirit. There are those who will rejoice in what God has done in salvation. And so we preach the gospel. One other thing that we learn from this and I think it's important for us to take note of, is to tally yourself in the hearers of the gospel here. Where do you fit in this story? How does the gospel strike you? Is it something that hits you and causes you joy and celebration and rejoicing? Or does the gospel sound like foolishness to you? Is the gospel frustrating to you because it calls out your sin? Brothers and sisters, I would encourage you that if you hear the gospel and it sounds sweet to you, rejoice in that. Glorify God for what he has done in salvation. But if you're here in this place today and the gospel that I'm now preaching, that, that Paul and Barnabas preached, is off-putting to you, sounds like foolishness to you, or maybe makes you angry, then my encouragement to you is to repent. Repent of your sin. Repent of, of your rejection of God's word and turn to Christ for he is able and willing to save. Aaron said it already. If Paul can save, or excuse me, if God can save someone like Saul, then he can save you. No matter how long you've rejected Christ, no matter how long you've been a hater of God, salvation is proclaimed to you today. Receive it and receive it with joy.